When I joined the technology side, I came to realize that there's a very different way of thinking about the relationship between the provider or the business and, say, the customer or the patient. And it's really one that is much more about co-producing, co-designing, really working together. So, And that really plays out in the way in which we think about, for example, digital health, digital technologies, or virtual care. Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. It's my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Dr. Vivian Lee, president of Health Platforms at Verily. Vivian, thank you so much for setting aside the time, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Patty. It's wonderful to be with you. You're most welcome. Why don't we get started? Maybe you can tell us, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, a little bit about Verily and uh, Mission. Sure. I joined Verily uh, about two and a half years ago now, not really knowing very much about the technology sector. And so for those of your listeners who may not know that much about Verily, let me give you a little bit of background. Verily originally started as a part of Google X. We were originally called Google Life Sciences. And then we were spun out and became one of the bets of the Alphabet family when Google became Alphabet. And from the beginning, we were purpose-built to develop life sciences and healthcare products. When I joined about two and a half years ago, it was to lead health platforms. And our mission really has been to think about how we can leverage some of the really remarkable capabilities in Verily, whether it's new sensors and devices like continuous glucose monitors for people with diabetes or big data analytics, machine learning capabilities. And how do we leverage all of those in order to really improve our healthcare system, to improve health and help reduce the costs of care? And that's the mission that we've been on, a very mission-driven organization. And we've been very fortunate to uh, attract some really wonderful talent. So I, I feel very, very privileged to be in this role. Thank you. That's great. That's great background. Vivian, you've had a very, very distinguished career. You've been a healthcare leader for a long time. You're a clinician by background. And you've spent a long time with uh, some leading providers across the country. And now for the last couple of years, you're in a technology firm. So... What has it been like? What has the change been like? And you know, can you maybe touch on a couple of your observations or learnings from your experience in the last couple of years at Verily? Oh, I, I've learned so much. And, and thanks for this question because it's it's really it is really interesting for me to reflect on just how much I have learned. There is so much complementarity between the healthcare environment and the technology environment and culture. And I feel like the intersection of the two is exactly where we, there's a sort of a sweet spot in terms of what, what I think we need in the industry in order to improve health outcomes and reduce the cost of care. And I'll, I'll give you 
I'll give you a couple of examples. When I went through medical school and residency and training and then worked in a number of different healthcare environments, I was always really, I was taught and I sort of thought about we as physicians really providing healthcare to patients. It was sort of a more or less a, a unilateral kind of relationship. You know, we knew and understood about biology and physiology, and we had medications and tests that we could perform or operations that we could do. And so it was really our job to deliver health to people. When I joined the technology side, I came to realize that there's a very different way of thinking about the relationship between the provider or the business and, say, the customer or the patient. And it's really one that is much more about co-producing, co-designing, really working together. So, And that really plays out in the way in which we think about, for example, digital health, digital technologies, or virtual care. Mm -hmm. So when we have, for example, our company called Onduo, which is a digital health company really about helping people with chronic diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases like hypertension or mental well-being, we actually don't think about ourselves as being the provider of health. We think about how do we work with people to co-produce their own health. We can provide information, for example, from a continuous glucose monitor about their blood sugars. We can help them take pictures of their meals and snacks from their camera on the app on their cell phone. And then they actually make the visual association between what they're eating and sleep, how they're sleeping, how they're exercising, and then what their blood sugars are doing. We might make some recommendations using our AI algorithms and say, you know, Patty, for you, soy milk seems to be better than skim milk in your coffee. But Vivian, you know, for you, maybe the skim milk is a little bit better. That can be helpful, but we're really helping the individual produce their health. So that that's one example of how the intersection between, I think, traditional healthcare and technology can be really, really beneficial to improve health outcomes. And another example is really around the way in which in healthcare, we have traditionally kind of used a one-size-fits-all approach to caring for people. When I was in medical school, every patient was a 70-kilogram white male. You know, the medications were dosed as if the individual was a 70-kilogram white male. Unfortunately, someone just corrected me yesterday and said, well, on these days, it's like the 90-kilogram white male, So, um, <laughs> which is not a good direction to be going with. But in, of course, in on the technology side, yes, we all carry around very similar phones, but our interaction with those phones, the way in which we use the phones, the experience we have, the benefit that we derive from them is extremely personalized. And again, so that's another example of where I think technology can help us in healthcare think about how do we create healthcare solutions that are really personalized, that are sensitive to cultural differences, to language differences, to differences in, in perceptions about our own health, and make it really be engaging so that people can really, again, co-produce and co-design their own health. Those are great examples and the intersection of healthcare and technology now, the third element of that, which I know Google is really, really strong at, is the data side of it. Google is known for its ability to aggregate very, very large data sets, make sense of them, apply advanced analytics algorithms to them, and identify insights that can uh, drive action. And uh, I can't think of a sector which can benefit from this kind of capability more than healthcare as we know it today. 
So my understanding is that Verily is focused a little bit more on the clinical research side of it. Although you did mention your partnerships uh, with Onduo, and I'm aware of the partnership with Dexcom, and more recently now Fitbit is going to be part of the family as well. Can you talk a little bit about how the data element plays into your overall mission for driving improved healthcare outcomes? Well, first of all, let me just clarify that Verily is actually a sister company to Google. Uh, We are both as part of the Alphabet family. Of course, Google is a much bigger sister than we are, but we're actually a completely separate company in many regards. So just to clarify that, we all are definitely part of the Alphabet family, though. Your question about data is a really good one. And in fact, our roots are in, we're in research and in clinical research. That's definitely how Verily got started. And so that's why when I joined about two and a half years ago, getting close to three years now, actually, my charge was to think about health delivery, healthcare, the delivery side of healthcare. And your question about data is really is spot on. So there are, we think about it in terms of, are there new data sources we should be introducing that can actually help engage people and drive better outcomes? So one example of that is our work in the continuous glucose monitor technology, which we have done in partnership with Dexcom. So there, it's really a matter of saying, you know, people with diabetes in the past, the information that they had about their own blood sugars was really based on either these hemoglobin A1C blood tests that you might take every six months or even a year, or maybe if you're daily doing the finger pricks to check your blood sugars Mm -hmm. and saying, well, maybe that's not enough information for individuals to really manage their blood sugars successfully. And so the idea of having a continuous glucose monitor, it's sort of maybe the size of a key fob that you might put on your arm or your abdomen that can measure your blood sugars 24-7 for a couple of weeks at a time can provide whole new levels of insights for individuals. So whole new data sources, I guess, for people in order to manage their health better. And so that's one, I think, example of data, thinking about data to provide not only insights, but personalized insights, because my blood sugar reaction to what I eat is going to be very different from yours. We, we see that consistently across the thousands of people that are parts of our programs, that we all are very different. Our physiology is very different. Our microbiome is actually very different. And that means that how our blood sugars react to our meals and exercises is actually very different. Another example of data is in a different area that we've been working on, which is um, we actually started a new company which is a stop-loss health insurance company. We announced that in the fall last year in partnership with Swiss Re. And there we have a whole different kind of approach to data and analytics to create what we call a precision risk analysis for... So this is for employers who are self-insured and are, of course, managing the health of their employees and covering that insurance and enabling them to have a more precise understanding of the risk of their employee population. And the purpose of that is, of course, then to enable them to, and us working with 
them to think about how they can reduce that risk. If they can see that some of their populations of, of patients are at higher risk for, say, developing kidney problems or developing cardiovascular problems, how can we intervene and lower that risk? So that's, again, very data-driven, very data science-driven, very analytics-driven. So those are a couple of examples. Many, I can We could go on and on, but those are a couple of examples. Yeah. I will come back to this, uh, to the point you made about helping employers manage their uh, employee population and manage their health, especially for chronic conditions such as diabetes. But thank you first for clarifying the the organizational structure. Many of us, uh, me included, uh, may not be entirely familiar with how Alphabet and Google and different companies within Google are organized. So thank you for clarifying. And I am aware that Rarely is a separate company and you have investors besides uh, Alphabet as well. Let me switch to to the topic you just mentioned, employers and their their desire to control the costs of healthcare for their employees. And everybody knows that one of the biggest components of any employer's cost base is healthcare and is certainly one of the fastest growing in terms of the, uh, the inflation year upon year. And in your book, The Long Fix, you, you address this and you talk about why we should be concerned not just about the cost, but also about what we're spending on. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for the benefit of our listeners? What led you to write the book? And uh, what was the central theme or message that you were trying to communicate through the book? Well, I, I wrote the book, The Long Fix, during a sabbatical after serving as the CEO of a healthcare system for about six years and the dean of the medical school, actually, and I, the audience for the long fix was really the general public, people who wanted to understand why is it that our healthcare system seems so dysfunctional? Why is it in the news all the time? And why is there this fundamental paradox of healthcare in the U.S., which is that we spend so much money on healthcare in this country? We spend about two to three times as much per person on healthcare than any other high-income country in the world. And yet, when you look at our health outcomes, we're really at the bottom of that list of those high-income nations for the most part. And so how can that be that we are overspending and yet underperforming? And one statistic, for example, when people say, oh, I can't believe our health outcomes are really that much worse than, say, Germany or Australia or And it actually, if you look at longevity, that's one of the measurements. I mean, how long on average are the babies born today going to live? Right now, the current projections are four, five, or six years, not months, but years less than the average baby born in Italy, in Japan, in Israel, in Australia. It's really, it's really stunning. And so I really wanted to understand this question And I wanted to offer some thoughts about how we could actually get to a much better place. And those thoughts were not my own thoughts. They weren't just figments of my imagination. Uh, They were really lessons from across the country where there are fantastic examples of much better performing health systems, much better ways of say, thinking about improving health. And I wanted to share those successes. And so that that really was my, was my overarching 
goal in that book. And one of the targets was employers. So I have a chapter just dedicated to employers with this, I can't remember, I think it's a 10-point action plan at the end. Employers, as you know, cover health care for half of all Americans. So they're a very important group of individuals who really need to understand how to bend the cost curve for their employees and keep them healthier, that they're, they're very, very financially and operationally motivated to do that. And yet they really haven't had the tools. And so I wanted to lay out, I wanted to provide in that chapter some really fantastic examples of how employers have worked together with healthcare systems to not only get better health outcomes for their employees, but actually lower their costs of care, get those costs down. And, and we actually, from, from interviewing people and from talking to people, I, I actually put together basically an action plan. So those are some of my motivations and those are some of the areas that I talk about in the book. And there have been several examples of employers finding success with uh, addressing maybe you know, specific conditions such as diabetes, for instance, and partnering with companies such as the ones that you're associated with. At the same time, maybe this is also a good time for us to talk about uh, at least one experiment that didn't uh, turn out as expected, which I'm talking about uh, Haven. And I was curious to learn what are your thoughts on that? Because it was, the whole uh, model was essentially what you just described, which is to take control of the cost and try to influence it as employers by looking at it holistically and trying to find ways to bend the cost curve and to improve the outcomes. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that, what we may have learned from that. I think that we're starting to see analyses of that, and I'm sure there will be many, many case studies written across business schools all over the country uh, about lessons learned there. I do think that for me, when I when I was really studying this space from the perspective of having been an employer, you know, when when I was at the University of Utah, of course we we had about I think fifteen thousand employees plus their dependents, and we actually had a health plan initially was just for our own employees and for some Medicaid uh, members that we were responsible for. And then we actually took a commercial license and became a commercial health plan because so many of the employers in our community were really interested in how we had been able to reduce the cost of care. And it was really from that work and then interviewing around the country people that I, I thought that it became very clear that as employers we actually really have levers for driving change in this country that we're just not not tapping into. So one of the stories that I talk about in The Long Fix is this story about what happened in Seattle at Virginia Mason Medical Center when one day the chair of medicine there was, uh, he was uh, informed that four of the big employers in Seattle, who had been sending their employees to Virginia Mason Medical Center for their care, were going to stop doing it because they were too expensive. And those employers were people that we all know about, like Starbucks, Costco, Nordstrom's, for example. And when he sat down and started looking at this, he realized, first of all, he realized that these employers were the ones who were actually paying his salary and his team's salary. I mean, they were actually literally his payers. And secondly, he realized that the relationship between them and the employers really needed to change. And the employers realized that healthcare was like a supply chain issue for them, that if they couldn't get good healthcare from Virginia Mason, their employees couldn't work. 
It was just like if you couldn't get a chip into the Intel factory, you know, business would just stop if, if their employees couldn't work. And so they started declaring specific performance specifications, specs, just like they would for any other supplier, they would expect that uh, Virginia Mason would deliver on those. And once they started to have that kind of a conversation, and they actually got more engaged in helping Virginia Mason perform better, it actually completely transformed the way in which Virginia Mason practiced and enabled Virginia Mason to actually become a much better health system. And that's why they became a center of excellence and Walmart and Lowe's and GE started flying their employees all the way over there just to get care. So I think there are a lot of lessons from those experiences that still make me feel very optimistic that employers has, have a really big role to play in transforming our healthcare system. That's a great example. I'm sure that this whole space is going to be carefully analyzed and uh, definitely I do see a trend towards employers taking more and more control over their costs. I wanted to go back to just a, a one concept that you mentioned in one of your earlier comments and for the benefit of our listeners, you mentioned the stop-loss insurance company that uh, you've started in partnership with Swiss Re. Could you just explain briefly for our listeners, what is it, what does stop-loss insurance mean? So as I mentioned, about half of all Americans receive their health care through their employers. And employers, if they're large enough, they can decide that instead of doing this through an insurance company, they can, in effect, be the insurance company. They can take the financial risk than an insurance company would take because they're big enough. And so they just set aside a pool of money every year to pay for the healthcare costs of their of their employees. And then usually they engage an insurance company to help be the administrator, to send the bills, to pay the hospitals, to deal with prescriptions and so on and so forth. When they do that, when they, they are called, they're usually referred to as being self-insured. And when they are a self-insured employer, they still may want to have some insurance just in case there are exceptional things that happen, you know, say an employee has a diagnosis that requires a very expensive treatment or gets into a really bad accident, uh, heaven forbid. And so that's called stop loss insurance. They'll they'll take out an insurance plan just to cover really high costs of care for individual employees. And right now, uh, typically when when we do that, I'm just speaking, you know, as an employer, if we buy stop loss insurance, it's usually there's just a set cutoff. So we'll say, you know, we just want to insure against any any claim that's over, say, $150,000. If anything's above that, the insurance company will cover it. And it's kind of a one-size-fits-all. And what we've been doing is really thinking about it in a more precise way, saying, well, you know, some people in your population may be at higher risk for having a really expensive condition. For example, they might look like they need a, they might need a transplant, you know, in the next year or two, whereas others the statisticians would tell us, the actuaries would tell us is a very low risk. And so we're starting to basically look at this space and and refine it and make it a lot more precise. And again, as I said, that enables us to identify those people who are at high risk that we could potentially lower that risk and maybe keep them from needing a transplant if we can actually intervene early enough. And that's really our goal. Another great example of applying data and advanced analytics to try and influence uh, costs, really. Switching back uh, to digital health and technology, one thing that I find uh, is healthcare traditionally, and you know this better than anyone else, 
is cautious and slow for very good reason for patient safety and a host of other issues. Technology, on the other hand, and especially Silicon Valley-based technology firms, they move very fast, you know, move fast, break things, fail fast. These are the kind of these are the kind of buzzwords that drive the way they do business. How do you reconcile these two instincts in your role and given your background when you're trying to really accelerate the pace of change, but at the same time do it in a risk-contained manner? That's a really interesting question. And in fact, we've really seen it in the last uh, nine months in response to COVID. So back in March, when it was really clear that we needed a lot more lab testing, I don't know if you remember when all of us yeah. started to go into shelter at home and, you know, there was just such a shortage of testing and we just could see the numbers taking off, but we just didn't have enough information about what was going on in the country because we didn't have enough testing. Our company was drawn into that and Verily began to build these community-based COVID testing centers starting in California and then all over the country, often in partnership, for example, with Rite Aid. And we actually turned almost overnight into a company that, you know, we were, we're full of these data scientists and we have laboratory scientists, some clinicians, you know, and all of a sudden we were becoming PPE experts and uh, mm-hmm. printing out barcodes for lab testing. It was really remarkable. And the pace of that change, Patty, was just fantastic. And our team in the health platform side Really, we were reached out to by a number of employers, you know, because obviously we work with uh, so many different businesses and said, well, how can you help us now during COVID? And so very quickly, we were able to stand up a whole new business. It's called Healthy at Work. It helps employers keep their employees safely in the workplace or bring them back to work safely. It includes everything from the app that has them check their symptoms helps them order their lab tests. We actually have these, we actually will will send people in to do the testing or you can do it yourself. We have kits that do it. You know, we built this entire business, hundreds of thousands of, of employees now using our program. And it was done in such a record speed. I mean, I, I'm, I myself found it really remarkable. Our engineers work 24-7 to write the code, our quality people, our FDA approval regulatory team, just, just nonstop. And so that pace, I think we saw that a lot across the whole country, the private sector really stepping up. Look at how quickly vaccines have been developed. You know, it's just really fantastic. Right, right. At the same time, I think what you're asking is sort of the balance, the yin and yang of that. And I think that it is really important that in companies like Verily, we do have seasoned healthcare executives. And so I feel very fortunate to be a part of, of Verily. My chief clinical officer is a longtime physician, Vindel Washington. He was the national coordinator for health IT under President Obama. We were very fortunate to uh, work with Rob Califf, who was the former FDA commissioner under President Obama, who um, now works with us and with Google Health. And so I think we also have that element of, of a deep understanding of healthcare and recognizing that healthcare is different from many other industries. And that it's also very vital. It's really vital for us as a health technology company to protect the people that we care for and to maintain that trust. 
and we need to earn that trust and then we need to maintain that trust. And that's something we all learned in healthcare as as clinicians and people caring for people, making very important decisions uh, with them. But it's especially important in the technology sector, I think, especially these days. So I think we we have we have to balance each other. Uh, the speed is absolutely essential, but that the great care that we take and and that maintenance of trust is is absolutely vital as well. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. I can certainly appreciate how when the the challenge is thrown at us, we can turn around and do things that we didn't think we could do. So I, I heard someone make a comment the other day: the pandemic has taught us that we're limited not by what we can do, but what we think we can do. So to your point, coming up with a vaccine in nine months, I don't think anyone would have said a couple of years back would have been possible. Similarly, the, the alacrity with which we've turned around and responded to the crisis and PP production and the testing and all of that. These are, I think, fantastic stories that we can learn from if, uh, if we look deeper and find out how, as a community, we all got together and really overcame this challenge. A lot of it written about that. So we're coming up to close of our time here, and I just have a couple of quick questions. Firstly, I want to touch upon the outlook for digital health startups. Digital health startups have been uh, raising a lot of VC money, and uh, many of them have gone IPO, and all of that continues to look very, very strong. The outlook seems very, very strong. In your observation, is this directly a function of health systems transforming themselves and really picking up the pace of change? Or is this more of a longer term outlook with with the sort of thinking that, you know, this is going to happen sooner or later. So we're going to make our bets now and wait for it to happen. So my question is, is it already happening? And that is what is driving this activity? or all this activity in anticipation of something that we all expect is going to happen? Well, you know, COVID is definitely accelerating everything. It's almost unprecedented to have hospitals and clinics essentially shuttered except for their COVID wings for such a period of time. And for people who are the most vulnerable, also being the ones that really need that care, people who have chronic conditions, the folks and in, in people in nursing homes, you know, the frail and elderly who actually need access to health care are the ones that are the most afraid because they are the most susceptible to COVID. So in that kind of environment, you it became obvious to everyone. Obviously, you can see from the telehealth numbers that pretty much overnight, every healthcare system developed a telehealth offering. And then, of course, we recognize that in telehealth, while it's very helpful to be able to text or video conference with a clinician, that in and of itself doesn't supplant in-person visits. There, You need to make measurements or you may need to listen to somebody's heart and lungs or, you know, there are a lot of things that you need to do when you have an in-person visit. So again, there's more interest in expanding beyond telehealth to other digital health offerings. And I think everyone could see even before COVID that this is a direction that was was really exciting as we talked about with continuous glucose monitors and and, uh, people with diabetes, the new sensors, the new attachments that can go on to different phones. It's been a really interesting area, very innovative area, a lot of things coming out. I think most of us think that it's still probably relatively early. I think we're still, I think that the 
what will be uh, developed in digital health is just going to be pretty phenomenal over the next few years. Uh, I can't wait. I'm actually really excited to see what happens. And so I think there's just an enormous excitement and the some of the barriers to digital health in terms of reimbursement and some of the regulatory issues also fell down overnight with uh, with COVID. Now, it's not clear that those are going to stay down forever, but I think that also freed up the market probably a little bit more. One thing that's important, though, that I do want to mention, Patty, as we talk about this is I do think it's very important that innovators in digital health think just as hard about innovating in terms of the way in which they're paid as they do about the products that they're doing. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that in our own work. So in Onduo, our, our disease management platform, ordinarily, you know, in healthcare, it's very much a fee-for-service model right now. now. That is one of the themes in my book, The Long Fix. It's, it's we really need to move from this model of paying for people to do things to us in a fee-for-service model, more procedures, more operations, more more imaging studies and so on. And instead think about, are we really getting better health? Are we actually getting healthier with all this treatment and rewarding, you know, better health? I think the same thing is true on the digital side that instead of recapitulating some of those weaknesses of our current healthcare system, instead of saying, oh yeah, pay me every time I click or text or, or video conference, you know, Instead, maybe we should get paid for showing that we're actually improving health outcomes. And that's what we've done actually in Onduo. We've had a few, several contracts with payers and said, you know what, we we only want to get paid if we are actually showing you that people with diabetes have better blood sugar control, people with high blood pressure have lower blood pressure, that people who need um, need their eyes checked and their kidneys checked because they have diabetes have had those things done. And um kind of putting our money where our mouth is in terms of really moving from fee-for-service to a more value-based model. So I'd like to see digital not only transform care, but also transform the way in which we pay for care, the business model of healthcare, because I think that's really where there's a huge opportunity. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with you, and that, that really is the opportunity ahead of us. Well, we are out of time. I have just one last question at a personal level. What are you currently reading? Oh, what am I reading? I just finished the book Team of Rivals, which is the book about Abraham Lincoln. And that was partly motivated by, you know, so much of what happened in the summer and the fall, Black Lives Matters, and just really wanting to think back about that. I actually uh, uh, am reading something called um, Seven Brief Lessons in Physics. My daughter suggested this by Carlo Rovelli. I'm reading that on my phone. It's beautiful little vignettes about physics. And I'm also reading Bill Bryson, who's one of my favorite writers, just to distract myself. I'm reading Made in America is the one I'm reading now. Fantastic. It's such a coincidence. I am reading a, a book uh, titled uh, Forged in Crisis. It uh, profiles six different leaders and Abe Lincoln is one of them, and I'm actually in the middle of that chapter right now. So there's something in common there. But uh, Vivian, it's such a pleasure speaking with you and having you on the on the podcast. And I look forward to following all of your work at Verily and uh, all your other uh, initiatives. Thank you once again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Patty. Really, really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
you can reach us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partner, Powbox. Secure email for modern healthcare right out of the box.